to episode 33 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, February 6th, 2020. Big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How are you doing, Courtney? Pretty good. Excellent. Midwinter, all good. Nice. Well, we can say that because it's 50 degrees here. 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes. 10 degrees for the rest of the world. Which is warm. Is it only 50 today? I thought it was going to be warmer because it has been 50, which is very cold for us. It's sunny though. No complaints. Yeah, no, it's nice. Nice. We will complain about the little football game. That was sad. So sad. <laughs> it was really sad for my husband who flew all the way to Miami for the J. Lo Shakira concert. <laughs> He um he also did not my husband did not come home with any souvenirs because he felt like they were very generic Super Bowl souvenirs, not specific 49er souvenirs. You know, they just kind of slapped the 49er logo <laughs> on it. But he did steal a couple glasses from a bar that were Miami Super Bowl glasses. Oh, they didn't cool. really say I don't think they say who's on them. We have a little historical precedent for stealing a cool bar glass now and then and leaving a really good tip okay so that seems fair Mm -hmm. I don't do it because I get really (laughs) scared that I'm gonna get yelled at yes but (laughs) I think lots of people do that yeah and they probably don't and he did ask and the waitress was like just take it (laughs) I say steal with like a tongue-in-cheek yes are you stealing anything? <laughs> Nothing to steal. Nothing to steal. All right, let's go. So we will have on the needles, on the easel, on the table, on the nightstand, and we will do our giveaway. Yay! So if you entered, uh, please stay tuned to the end and see if you won a hoodie. Um, so on the needles, I have just been chugging away at all the same stuff, um, which has been fun. My Vanilla is the New Black Socks are coming right along. Wait, these are brand new, right? I don't think so. No, I talked. To, I know because I talked about the colorway last time, which is the Hellbent Feminist She-Devil colorway <laughs> from White Birch Fiber Arts. Okay. Which is pinks and blue-grays, um, kind of a, a gradient of both of those colors in alternating stripes. So it's very bright and cheery and awesome. And Vanilla is the New Black is... Basically just a plain vanilla sock, which is just a straight, straight knitting, except the heel treatment is a little different and it keeps the stripes continuing without interruption. Whereas if you do uh, like a flapping gusset heel, it'll kind of break them up and make it look a little odd, which I mean, it's in your sock, it's in your shoe. No one's really going to see it, but it is kind of fun to, to try a new heel treatment. And so that's kind of the only part where you have to pay attention. Other than that, it's just knitting, and wow, does that go fast. Good. I hadn't quite realized, because last pair of socks I did had stuck in that panel in the front, so a row of knitting and a row of purling, so it's not complicated, not anything you need to think about or look at a pattern. You can just do it, but you're still switching how you're knitting. It takes a little bit longer, and just the straight knitting is amazingly fast. So I have finished... The first one, and I'm almost done with the leg of the second. Wow. So, yeah, they're they're moving right along. And that pattern is by Anna Fletcher, and that's Vanilla is the New Black. And that's been out for a few years. My Quivet scarf did not finish in time for 
the pigskin party interception. I had forgotten how long scarves take, even if it is a fairly simple lace pattern and not terribly wide. They're just repetitive. Although the yarn is very nice and it's turning out lovely and I will get to it. I enjoyed looking at those animals last time because mm-hmm. I painted one for, yeah. for our cover release or for our episode release and I love their long noses and um, their horn looks like a hairdo. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of. So that yeah. was fun. Yeah, so it's coming along just slowly. I have to be in the right mood to to pick that up and um, I got a bunch of work done on my Elton cardigan during the aforementioned football game. I think I am about 11 inches, 11 or 12 inches done of the body and I have to get to, I want to say 13, it might actually be 15. I should probably (laughs) check that because it is a little bit different. The problem I'm running into is that I just realized that the two skeins of the fingering weight yarn that I bought are a little bit different. They're the same colorway, but with hand dyed yarns, if they come from different lots or any number of things that are different places in the dye pot, they can turn different colors. Just yeah. a little bit. I bought them at Vogue Knitting Live, which was in some hotel ballroom, and the lighting was horrid, so you couldn't really see anything. So not upset that I bought two different colors, or you know, that's just something that happens with hand painted yarns, and there's ways of dealing with it. But it's so far into the project that I have to start to make a decision about what I'm going to do. And I'm kind of thinking because you do stripes of the fingering and then a stripe of the mohair lace and then a stripe of the fingering that maybe it won't be quite as noticeable or I can start striping now and it won't. I don't know. Mm. And then I'm also look. I've got to also probably weigh the yarn, maybe weigh it, knit a stripe and weigh it again and see how much I'm using. Because I feel like I still have a lot of that first skein left that I might be able to get the whole thing done with just the one. But I don't want to get to the end and just have the button band in a different color or something. Yeah. So I need to do some more planning with that. And in the meantime, I just keep knitting. I need to really make a decision. It's all problem solving. Yes. Yeah. Which is less fun than knitting. Mm Mm-hmm. So. True for painting, too. Yeah. So I will get there. But it is coming along, and I'm still enjoying it. And in the meantime, stitches west is soon. Like, oh boy, it must be two weeks because yeah. I was looking at it, and it's the day. The next time we record will be the day before, or the day it starts. But it starts at night, or the marketplace opens at night. So I'm kind of trying to figure out if there's anything I need to buy because last year I had some very specific things that I was looking for, and this year I'm back to. Well, I don't know. I'll just go look at pretty yarn. <laughs> Which yeah. is not a good plan because then I end up buying buying way too much. And I have so many things that I still want to work with in my stash. I think my plan is to be there definitely Friday. That's usually when I go down. And then hopefully Saturday as well. In the afternoon, there is the podcaster meetup in the bar area of the hotel that is attached to the convention center. A lot of people meet up there and chat. And I went last year for the first time and that was really fun Um, so hopefully i'll be able to do that Um, and i will try and post on instagram when i finally decide what i'm doing so if anybody wants to meet up while i'm down there either friday or saturday let me know and we can do that fun yeah so i'm excited can i tell you about some yarns from us yes so i've switched gears 
from the Netherlands to Australia. I saw your final post. Was that in your stories? Was a stamp? Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And I'm really excited, very re-energized. Well, I mean, I had energy all the way through the Netherlands, and now I'm switching to Australia. I'm still waiting for most of the surveys to come back, so it feels good to um, have another place to land on for now. almost done with mine, I promise. It's okay. There's no (laughs) rush. I did get one back from an Australian friend, and her favorite places are in Australia, so I have plenty of material to work with for now. So I thought it would be fun if whenever I land on these places to do a little research about local yarn and share it here because we have captive yarn listeners. Yes. So I want to talk about, I am sure that there are so many more Australian yarn manufacturers and dyers. They do sheep there, don't they? They do a lot of sheep. And historically, from what I'm, from my early research, originally most of the yarn was used in commercial, in the commercial industry and carpets and that kind of fiber use. And then for many years, like the seventies and eighties, all of that business shifted to China. So if they had sheep, they were just sending their yarn to be produced in China in, you know, major consortium type things. But since the 90s, since knitting, hand knitting has made its resurgence, you know, globally, that's fair to say, don't you think? Yeah. It's 90s. That their own production of hand produced yarns has found new footing. And so now there are lots of farms and dyers and and I only have a few to talk about today but I thought it would be fun for you to check them out there is there are a couple little ones and one big one say hey little hen is a website that has they have their own yarns and they have a really darling dots beanie it's called darling dots beanie I love the it's like a cream and yellow colorway on this uh, beanie it's a hat I would knit And that's how I'm measuring all of these things. (laughs) There's something I would knit if I could knit. I can knit. I just choose not to. There's a bigger company called the Australian Yarn Company. And they're an umbrella for, I think, four or five brands. Patton's, Kleck Heaton, Panda, Shepherd, and Heirloom. And that's a huge consortium of different farms and and yarns and I I just really like their website is huge and they may or I haven't looked to see if these guys are on Ravelry there was another um, smaller site called Millpost Merino and they have beautiful patterns and one of them was the Murnong beanie pattern and the Murnong is um and this is how my brain works I was wondering what that name meant, and so I looked it up, and it's the Murnong is an Australian yam daisy cultivated by the Aboriginal people in Southern Australia. So this is an edible thing, and it's this tiny little yam the size of your thumb almost. And the daisy looks kind of like um, a dandelion, bright yellow. Anyhow, I really thought that it was a fun way to embed a pattern with a native reference. There's a company called Black Waddle Alpaca Yarn and Fiber. 
beautiful, beautiful yarns. And there were two colors that, well, the color naming is amazing. They have one called Banksia, which is a native Australian flower that's just gorgeous purples and pink tones. And then they have another yarn called Tyranny, and it's a burnt orange. And I, it's kind of my color right now, and I never, ever pick orange. Ooh. I just looked them up on the, <laughs> on the online internets. Artesian hand-dyed yarn in warmth, luxury, and comfort. Gorgeous, gorgeous colors. So that's all that I have for today for Australian yarns, but have fun looking them up. Yeah. The designer, Helen Stewart, is from Australia as well, and she does a lot of fun patterns that I've made. And she was in England for a long time, and I think I just heard that she has moved back to Australia. Super. Yeah. Like that. Thank you. All right, so let's hear more about Australia on the easel. So if you haven't been around for a little while or you're new to us, I I have just launched a new project called Limb and Latitude where I am painting with a sense of place. And so for the past three weeks, I've been painting the Netherlands and I did a map and I did 16 paintings for the Netherlands. Wow. Different products and scenes and things that are Dutch, basically, or as close as I can get to figuring out what's Dutch from afar. I have been there And um, so some of it was based on my recollection. Some of it was great material that I received from Dutch people who follow me on Instagram. And that interaction was really fun. And so now I have sent out about 80 surveys into the world and I'm waiting to hear back. I've gotten a bunch while I'm waiting for more to trickle in. I've shifted gears to Australia. And I could probably spend a year painting things that are Australian. (laughs) But what I've decided to do is to paint um, for a couple weeks from a place. And then if I get a survey later on that comes in about Australia or if something else pertinent comes through, I'll jump back to it, you know, because I'm doing them in parts, you know, with the narrative and the paintings. The large part of this is painting and I'm looking at flora, fauna, notable people, sites, and products. So there's definitely going to be a jar of Vegemite coming up. Because packaging. Because packaging is so much fun to paint. I just started Australia last night, so my notebook is here. And I'm looking at art supplies that were made in Australia. And I'm looking at what they... So I'm totally interested in the notebook. Is this where you actually do the painting or is this just no, ideas? No, these and... are just my notes about... Oh, cool. So the Netherlands, For this is more full because I just finished with it, but I was looking at quotes by Vincent van Gogh and thinking how I could incorporate it into a painting. And I ended up doing a Dutch typewriter with a sheet coming out of it with van Gogh's quote right. and some Dutch tulips because Holland... Well, the Netherlands are so known for tulips. Right, so this is sort of the writing out yeah, this, of your thoughts. Yeah, this is important because the narratives require some amount of and there's some sketches research. And... and this just allows me to keep it all in one place. Otherwise, I have 
I'm definitely a paper and pencil person. So it's nice to have a, a home for all of that. And so as I'm looking at Australia, you know, I kind of jump around a lot, incredible amounts of flora and fauna. I will not be painting any of their arachnids. No. No. And I don't think I'll be doing any of their venomous snakes either. Okay. Because other people have a snake phobia like I have an arachnid phobia, and I won't do that to people. But there for sure will be a platypus and a koala. Excellent. Platypuses are weird creatures, so I'm excited to do more research about that. Yeah, so off I go into the land down under. And you're still taking submissions? I'm still taking submissions. You can find me at Courtney SF, no you and Courtney, um, and just send me a direct message with your address and I will, I'll sneak you one, sneak off a couple Or you can fill it out online. Or you can do it online at CourtneySpillane.com. But it is a very nice piece of real mail to receive. Thank you. I got very good at painting globes on the fly. They're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. On the table. Um, so on the table, I have been using my Instapot. Instant Pot. I keep wanting to say Instapot, and it's Instant Pot. Okay. But anyway, yes, only <laughs> two or three years behind the trend, but that's where we are. Um, I've made some really tasty things in it. And you figured out the the pressure, yeah, like how so long I, it takes? Yeah, so I'm still working on that. I'm still timing it when I hit start and then seeing how long. I think the amount of liquid is what makes it take longer. So if you've got, you know, a bunch of chicken and then a little bit of liquid, it'll come up to pressure much more quickly than a giant pot of chili. Hmm. So that seems to be I wish I understood the science behind that. I do not. I I guess I could actually try and research it instead of just testing it on my own and see if there is any kind of guidelines out there. But haven't done that yet. But I made a beef stroganoff for um, myself and boy too. Um, and that used ground beef and I think cream of mushroom sauce and some actual mushrooms. I threw some shiitakes that I had from my produce box in there and you cook the pasta in there at the same time. So fabulous. How did your vegetarians eat? They were in Southern California for a regatta. Okay. That is the one thing I have not found a good gluten-free substitute for is egg noodles because for some recipes like stroganoff, it just feels that's what should be in there or chicken noodle soup should be egg noodles. I haven't quite figured out that. I can't help you there. Yeah, it's just a personal thing. Yeah. I also made a creamy tomato and gnocchi soup. Yum. That was from the Cook with Manali website. I think I found it through Pinterest, but that's the actual website. That was super fast. I used the gnocchi, the cauliflower gnocchi from Trader Joe's, which are frozen. And her original recipe is with the shelf-stable gnocchi. So she thought that any other kind would probably work but wasn't entirely sure so i was like well let's see what happens and you only cook it for you bring it up to pressure and then cook it for a minute so that then and then as it comes down it continues cooking and it used canned tomatoes and vegetable broth and onions which you sauteed in the pan in the pot beforehand so there wasn't a lot of cooking it was more building the flavors um, and combining them and the gnocchi you don't want to cook them too much because then they get gummy but this Worked out really well, super fast. You had a little cream at the end, some fresh basil, and everybody really liked it. I was kind of worried that it would be too chunky, and it wasn't. I mean, it was chunky, but it was a nice 
nice level of chunk. <laughs> so, because a lot of times tomato soup is really yeah. totally pureed and right. thin, and this was not, but it was really good. And served it with some salad, and everybody enjoyed that. And then I did a mac and cheese, which was one of those recipes where you're making it, and you're looking at the proportions, and you're thinking, that's not right. And then you're correct, but it's too late. <laughs> this was actually, so this was from my Instant Pot, my gluten-free Instant Pot cookbook. So it was just me and the boys. And you start off, well, you start off sauteing bacon in the pan, so it has that bacony flavor. Obviously, you could just not do that part. It was basically cheese with a hint of macaroni. And there was so much, it was like cheese soup. There was so much cheese. You could have easily doubled the amount of pasta and it would have been fine. I mean, my boys liked it a lot. <laughs> it was super cheesy. Super, super cheesy, but I was not that. I mean, I ate it because that was what we were having for dinner and I didn't feel like making something else. It really was way too much. So, so that one will need some tweaking. Or just another box of pasta. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, tweaking in the sense of adding just another box of pasta and see if that works. I can't, I don't think it would take any longer. Flavor was good. Just too much sauce. Last night I did roasted squash and tofu from Smitten Kitchen, which I think is her most recent recipe or, well, it was her recipe for this, this Monday, I think is when she updated the blog. So it was, you slice squash, you slice tofu, you make a soy, ginger, some brown sugar sauce, and you put it all over there and you roast it. And then halfway through, you add some sliced garlic and a little bit of olive oil, finish roasting it, and top it with some lime juice and sesame seeds when it comes out. Really tasty stuff. The boys were fine with it. I don't know if that was their favorite, but they ate it. <laughs> they served it with rice and a salad, green salad with various vegetable things going on. Um, Simon really liked it. I really liked the flavor. I don't know if the tofu got quite as caramelized as I thought it would, but the squash was good. So that one was a little different. And I, I think so far this week, we've just eaten vegetarian at dinner. Well, that's so, a win. Yeah. So the boys seem okay with it. I feel like they're getting meat-based proteins usually in their lunch. I know boy two is because I make his lunch. The other one eats at school. So I don't exactly know what he's eating, but I know I'm I'm guessing it's not vegetarian. So I just, I, I need to do a little more research about how much protein one person needs and where all you get it from because I've been reading conflicting ideas. And I think ideas. the teens are a little different than yes. a 40-something lady. Yes, who is much less athletic than they are. Right. Although not growing. Yeah. Well, not in the same way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so I've got to kind of figure out how much it's much easier to make one meal for all of us absolutely instead of two even if it the extra part is just throwing sausage on the grill but and there's only so much sausage sausage one should really be eating that's why i like shredded chicken mm, yeah so work in progress but some tasty things how about you okay did you make your super bowl chicken i made the chicken ring which is you know straight off a package i think my grandmother would be so proud <laughs> The Super Bowl chicken ring is something my kids love, love, love. And I only make it for the Super Bowl because it just should only be eaten once a year. Yeah. It's like Pillsbury Crescent dough with wrapped around shredded chicken that is, it's teenage boy. You know, it's pub food, basically. Yeah. So I made that for them. But I also... 
went the distance and made empanadas from scratch because Kelly D in Florida, who is one of my great art friends, she sent me a book called Hand Pie. This really cute little cookbook, and I want to cook a few more things, and then I'll lend it over here, although it's pretty glutenful, given the fact that it's hand pies, but I need it for Australia. And that inspired me to just give in already and go the distance and make the empanadas that my family loves. I researched some dough recipes from hand pie and landed on one that is cream cheese based because I had the cream cheese for the... (laughs) the chicken ring and then I used a filling recipe from a website called the modern proper which is totally new to me but lots of other people have heard about this they've got a huge following and it's really beautifully curated take a peek at it great recipes so she had an empanada filling recipe that I liked and why I liked it is All of the vegetables that were missing from the chicken ring were snuck into the empanada. Mm. It calls for some potato, tiny cubes mixed in with the ground beef. And so I backed off the ground beef a little bit and did a sweet potato and an Idaho potato. Mm. And then I added in like tons of carrots and onion and celery and peas and or something else, maybe a parsnip. That was in the drawer. To be sure, the spices were more Latin flavored, but it really had the consistency of like an English stew (laughs) um, in an empanada. So it was just like a meat pocket, basically, or a hand pie. A huge crowd pleaser. They took forever because Mm. I handmade the dough, Mm. you know, and had to roll out the little round discs there's got to be a faster way for this and then when you put the filling in the middle you kind of have to crimp it to get Mm. it to close all the way around it was totally worth the effort though I made them a little bit bigger and I had a bunch of teenagers over for the Super Bowl they were full with one and granted they were eating other things but they're really filling there's like maybe a half a cup of mixture inside and then plus the pocket oh yeah so they were substantive and then how many did you make i made 16 i think okay and they lasted for the super bowl and the next night we had them again Mm. they also so that's definitely worth the effort totally worth the effort they were better the second day when they Mm. when i reheated them in the oven i had not underbaked them but like Definitely didn't let them go overboard. And then when we reheated them, the dough was amazing. Really? So at first, I wasn't sold on the cream cheese dough. Mm -hmm. But then the next day, I thought maybe that's the selling point because they were just fantastic the next day. Interesting. Really, really good. They, you know, my special sauce that I like from the, that I'm not allowed to say the name of on the air. They go really well with the empanadas. Hmm. Yes, and I I will make a note to myself to put that sauce in the show notes. Yeah, we haven't <laughs> talked about that. <laughs> I still use in a it. while. In that same theme of things, we I did empan or enchiladas from scratch, and did the the enchilada sauce in a skillet, and then mixed it in with shredded chicken, 
and baked that off. And that's been really, that was super easy for the nights when not everybody's eating at the same time. Right. So um, I found a good recipe for a homemade enchilada sauce. And I did add to it um, a little bit of brown sugar hmm. and a little bit of cocoa powder. It needed a slight tweak, but that's a personal preference. And then um, I'm happy to report that this morning I had a tiny bit of Vegemite. This is not a recipe. A tiny bit of Vegemite on my day's bread toast. I don't not like it. <laughs> I think Vegemite is is definitely something you grow up with and a, kind of an acquired taste. I've left some here with Monica so that she can report in on her Vegemite experience. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had it. There's something about it that's sort of like... Intriguing. Mm-hmm. It's definitely that umami flavor profile. Right. And the um, the packaging is like gives you energy and everything you need to pep you up. And it just makes <laughs> you feel like you're going to be superhero-ish after you eat some. It definitely curbs um, a salt craving. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's pretty salty. You seem pretty perky today. Oh, well, so. thank you. So, so I have to get you a cape for your okay. superhero. But that came to me from Angie, who is in Kabulture, I think is how you say it, in Australia. So oh, she okay. she knew she knew she had a little heads up that I was headed to Australia next. Oh. So she sent me some. That was nice. Yeah, we have oh. good listeners. We do. Yeah. Okay. On the nightstand. Oh, so many books, <laughs> and no series for me this time so that's exciting wow can i just say how much i love our library yes please they're so good although i did find out that you can only have 20 books on hold at a time now i don't know if that's a new thing or just i finally hit the limit because i will put books on hold and then pause them because otherwise they all come in at once and i still always screw this up and have you know five or six books due in three weeks but i still put things on hold and i started getting a message there's something wrong with your account. Please see a librarian. And I thought, they make you show an ID to prove that you still live in the city every few years. I thought maybe that was it. My account had expired and it's fine. You just need to go in. And then I had some books to pick up that were on hold. So I went in and I asked him about it. He's like, oh yeah, you can only have 20 books on hold at a time. And I'm thinking, why could they not just tell me that? Like, this is not yeah. a problem with my account. I really don't think I need to have a conference with a librarian. Right, because you can... Just tell me. You can only have 20 books on hold at a time. You can put as many as you want, I think, on your shelf. On your and, for later shelf? Yeah, yeah and sure. then... Yeah. I, I have never But then never it ends figured... up like my Goodreads queue where <laughs> it's like... Did I read that? Books. Yeah. No, it's got like 400 books in my I want to read this list. Oh. And I always forget to go back to them, so... Yeah. Anyway. It's, I can't tell you... That has to be a much more effective process than what I do, which is jotting things down in the corner of a piece of paper or on the back of a grocery list and then losing track of it or yeah. then take wondering. pictures of things sometimes. Oh, that's book, a good idea. If I'm at a bookstore and I want to read something, I'll just take a picture and then I'll go find it at the library if I can, which usually you can because libraries are wonderful like that the interlibrary loan. I was actually going to say nice things about our library, not like what's wrong with your programming messages. <laughs> but, um, but and they're also really fast. They're like, so fast. They're so fast with the holds. Even if you're on a list of 400, you still get it 
relatively quickly. My parents are in a suburban library and a really good one. They will be on a hold list forever, forever. I think that's partly because our library has a great method of we need X number of copies of this hit book for our community. And we, as readers, are cognizant of this. I waited, you know, I waited three weeks for this. There are other people waiting for it. It's like read or die, you know, (laughs) like they're a little bit more. Yeah. I think the readers are aware too. Yeah. I think it's mostly, yeah, that they have enough copies, um, I think is helpful. Anyway, so. The Yay, great books that San I've Francisco Public yes. Library. Sorry. They are really good. No, they are really good. So the first book I read was Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts by Kate Reculia. Did you ever read The Westing Game as a kid? No. Okay. I don't think so. Oh, anyway. Fabulous. This reminded me a lot of it, but kind of for grown-ups. So Tuesday Mooney works for a hospital in their fundraising wing, and she does research on potential donors. And she is at a fundraising event at the hospital and this sort of reclusive multimillionaire dies suddenly at the event. And then his will comes out and it is an open letter to the citizens of Boston. He has set up a scavenger hunt for cash and prizes. And Tuesday is on board. And so the whole thing is kind of is about this scavenger hunt. So it's through the city of Boston Fun. Um, so there's lots of locations, um, you know, lots of research going on. There's a little bit of, of uh, ghosts, maybe, or maybe not. Um, so it was a really fun book. She meets other people. Um, so it's pretty lighthearted, but there's a little bit of, of some serious things in the background. I enjoyed it very much. And then I read The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, which, in case you haven't heard, sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. And... I really liked it. Great. Um, I know it's gotten kind of mixed reviews, I think. It was, I will say it was much more plot-driven than I expected. I think of her, and I don't know why, I guess it's been a little while since I've read one of her books, and I've read most of her books. I think of her as a little more literary. Mm-hmm. This was full-on plot. There was hmm. not a ton of character development. So Wow. It was interesting. Um, so I blew through it because I had gotten it in hardcover. It's a big book. I needed to read it because I needed to return it to the library within the three weeks because other people were waiting. Um, but I was a little bit worried, like, was it going to be too intense? And it was really a nice, I mean, it's an intense read, obviously, because yeah. it's still taking place in the future Gilead. There are three different narrators. One is a teenage girl in who grows up in Canada. The other is she starts off as a teenager and ends up early 20s who's growing up in Gilead, and the other is one of, well, she is the lead aunt, aunt, so the leader, basically the leader of all the women in Gilead, and the the aunts are in charge of training the handmaids and organizing the weddings and teaching in the schools and kind of governing all the women's issues. Um, So it goes back into the history of like how she got into this position from the creation of Gilead and how she was involved with that. And then it's modern, the two, the girls, the one in Canada and the one in Gilead and how they're growing up. And they're, the three of them are giving statements or their testaments, mm-hmm. I suppose we could say. That's, that's the title. <laughs> it's very sneaky that way. And so you don't know how it all is going to come together. And um, yeah, so it was really, it was interesting. And then 
there's a little, not a twist at the end, but they kind of go farther in the future looking back. And that part was, was interesting about how, how we see time and how we learn things and yeah, how our perceptions can of history can, can change. And, and I think this takes place, starts about 15 years after the end of The Handmaid's Tale. So, so I enjoyed it, I guess, more than I thought I would. Good. I mean, I, you know, I like, I love her writing and I like The Handmaid's Tale when I read it, although I heard that a lot of people have gone back to reread it and... It's harder to read now. Yeah. So, that is The Testaments by Margaret Atwood. Then I read This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone. And I love this book. It was not terribly long. They wrote it together. I'm not sure if they each wrote a chapter. There's there's two main characters, two narrators. So I'm not sure if they each had one because it didn't feel like terribly different, the writing styles. Maybe they, their writing styles are just super complimentary. Anyway, this book is like a fantasy sci-fi. There is a war going on throughout time and space uh, between the agency, which kind of represents technology, and the garden, which represents nature. And the two main characters are red and blue, and they are top warriors on either side of the war. And they travel through different strands of time to affect history, to make it go in a certain direction. So it could be going to fight with Genghis Khan and making sure one particular person dies, or going and making, making sure a monk hears a bird and then goes out to become a hermit and builds a little hut that 200 years later a woman and child will find shelter from in a snowstorm and then the child grows up to, I don't know, invent math or something. So, (laughs) whatever. So it's weird. It's kind of the butterfly effect, the things they're doing for the most part. Um, And through, you know, different strands of time. And and so it's it's a very interesting vision. Um, And they become aware of each other. And one of them writes a letter. And the letters are embedded in time so red will cut down a tree and the blue will have made the rings of the tree the words wow so it's all this weird time stuff Um, but they're on opposite sides of the war so can this relationship go anywhere and it's each chapter is either red or blue and where they are in time and what they're doing and how they find the next letter and then where they go from there and then it's the actual letter and then it goes to where blue is or you know whoever i thought it was really different it was really interesting I wouldn't call it a a romance although it's got you know it's a love story but the time can't think about the time stuff too much what they've done with it is really beautiful and intriguing and but not overly burdensome like you don't just don't think about it too much I guess suspend your disbelief and yes I mean there's always weird stuff you can do with time and yeah, so I really, I really like that one a lot. And then I read The Witches Are Coming by Lindy West. I'm taking this from the description of the book. It is a wickedly funny cultural critique from the author of the critically acclaimed memoir and Hulu series Shrill, in which she exposes misogyny in the Me Too era. It was definitely very funny. Definitely talks about misogyny in the Me Too era and how we got there. Kind of all of our cultural things that we don't even think about growing up with and how that all led to where we are now. I enjoyed it. It was funny. Kind of, she's the preacher, but I'm in the choir, so it wasn't, Yeah. I didn't learn a whole lot of new things, but 
you know, it was interesting and she was a good writer and um, I would like to check out her TV series, but I would need to get Hulu. So <laughs> we'll think about that. Handmaid's Tale is on there too and I haven't seen that yet either. Yeah, so. I haven't either. So many things. And then I am currently reading Love Lettering by Kate Claiborne, which is definitely a romance. And the heroine is a professional calligrapher. She does, Ooh. she started off doing kind of wedding invitations and stuff and now she's moved on to day planners. So it's like all this stuff about letters and all the letters she notices and, and what it means to her. And so that's really cute. And it makes me think of you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I think I would like that book. <laughs> it's good. And it takes place in New York City. So there's a lot. It's almost, it's kind of a love letter to New York as well. Yeah. She's traveling around the city, looking at signs and trying to get artistic inspiration. And so it's really, it's really cute. And um, continuing to read it and we'll find out how they get to their, their happily ever after. Um, and then also listening to The Secret Place by Tana French, which is the companion to the one that annoyed me, which is very interesting. Anyway, I'll talk about more about it, but I am less annoyed with her now. Okay. We'll just say that. And once I finish it, we can talk more about it. Okay. How about you? I read Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips for my book group. Okay. Disappearing Earth is a newer, newer publication, fiction. It takes place on the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is the little piece of Russia that tucks down on the other side of the Bering Strait from Alaska. Okay. The population up there are, I think it would be considered some indigenous peoples, Mm -hmm who have also been, there's some, maybe some Mongolian influence and some Russian influence. You know, that it's a, I think, a distinct population. And the book heightens the difference between those native populations or population, I'm not really quite sure, and outsiders, people who've come either from Moscow or I don't, I don't really know who else would be, but definitely people who weren't born and raised there. And a lot of the population, too, has some of those Mongolian tribal practices where they would build a yurt and then farm or or, um, hunt, you know, for parts of the year, the warmer parts of the year, and then go back to their town Mm. in the winter. So there's a lot of talk about joining the family for the summer for that hunting, for for the hunting expeditions. But this book is really a mystery because the structure of it is such that in the beginning, two young sisters go missing in one of the towns. There's like one casual witness to it, but she didn't think anything of it because the girl's got willingly into the car of a stranger and so she thought that it was their dad and she was out walking her dog and she wasn't close enough to hear conversation and she was able to describe the car but not really much else so that happens in august and then each month you get a new perspective and a new piece of i don't know that you're really getting any answers but maybe connecting some dots a little Mm. bit over the course of the year. And there, like I was saying, there's 
great stress between the native population and anyone who's an outsider and people are suspicious of the outsiders and it's just it's a really fraught community and everybody is skeptical of everyone else and the ending is supremely haunting and I think on the whole I must leave it there because it's a mystery and I don't want to I think this is a really worthwhile book. That sounds it's really good. from a part of the world that I, and I have read stuff from Russia before. I've never read anything about this part of Russia. And I think. Is it translated or? No, I think she's an English author oh. or an American author. I don't know. I would love to look for an interview from her about why she chose this particular part of the world place as you know is so interesting to me but in this by the same token I don't know if you've been seeing the there's been a couple pieces in the news about indigenous women Native American women who go missing and and authorities don't look as hard or as long for them as they would a non-indigenous woman and that those populations are marginalized in so many ways, but also in the context of crime. I've been seeing other pieces about that here in the U.S., and so um, it's interesting to find this piece of fiction illustrating a similar problem someplace else. So that, again, is Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips. Really interesting. Then... I'm listening to The Kept Woman by Karen Slaughter. And um, I had a friend here, my friend Kelly from Boston, and she raved about Karen Slaughter as a mystery author. And those are great for me to have in the background while I'm painting. Despite the fact that it's read by an American who has no accent whatsoever. (laughs) I'm teasing. I don't mind. This is part of the Will Trent series. I guess Karen Slaughter has a number of books that focus on Will Trent, who's a detective. Okay. He's definitely got some... I, this is the first one I've ever read. I'm jumping in. I don't, my friend said it was okay, too. They, there is a little bit of order to them, and she waved me off of one, and so this is the one that I'm, I'm starting on. I think what's interesting about this is that the character, the the protagonist in the book is Will Trent's ex-wife like he grew up with her and so he has such a strong connection and then there's this other woman that he's trying to forge a relationship with and it's all very complicated and I don't know if I have done myself a disservice by (laughs) jumping in at this point and not knowing anything and so is it more Character driven, or I mean, it's a mystery. It's, it feels a little bit more like character driven. It feels similar to that. Kate Atkinson, where there. It does. It feels similar to that. There's some internal, there's some internal growth happening, and even the secondary characters are you. You learn about them, and you can see them sort of changing their mind. I don't feel like she's dropping the ball on a decision. I feel like I know why characters are making the shifts that they're making mm-hmm. in terms of how they're looking at this big case that they're all working on. And 
I still have a little bit more to go, so I'm not sure how it wraps, but I feel like the mysteries are often satisfying. So if there's a big surprise, I'll let you know, but so far so good on that one. When I was first starting Lemon Latitude, I remember I thought I was going to do Belgium first for some reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Chocolate. I think for the chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, that's where I'm headed right after this is to go see if I can find some native Australian chocolate at the chocolate shop on 24th Street. Oh, nice. I know. Tough life you have. I know. It's, It's really, it's work, people. Yes. So this will make even less sense when I explain it. However... I think what how I started, I thought I was going to do Belgium, and I started looking at awesome fiction in translation. And I did a really generic search mm-hmm. to get myself going. And I came across this book called The Godmother, which won a European crime fiction prize and was getting amazing reviews just in the original umbrella search that I did. And it's a slim novel. It takes place in France. So I grabbed it, and it it came through from the library, and I thought, well, I'll just read it quick. It's interesting. It looked it's really interesting. Long. It's also got a great cover of, like, a long black skirt and just those, what do you call those, kitten heels kind of mm-hmm. walking away. And it looks mysterious. It's got atmosphere just on the cover of the yep. book. And it says that it's the inspiration for the upcoming motion picture, Mama Weed. Have you heard of that? No. Me either. So, this novel is about an interpreter for the Ministry of Justice in France. And she is fluent in Arabic. And so, she is often hired to translate these wiretaps that they... Um, that the police have going for drug rings and like all kinds of nefarious stuff, but drug rings in particular. And so she is, I think, widowed, um, but she's got a boyfriend who's on the police force and she's in her 50s um, and she has two daughters, adult daughters. And she, geez, how much can I tell of this? Basically, you know, she's translating for these Arabic speakers. Mm -hmm. So she's the only one who knows what they're really saying. And she has the ability to audit or shift the transcripts a little bit. So she lands herself a giant monster pile of weed and hides it in her basement and finds a great buyer for it and becomes the godmother and in the transcripts she is able to sort of edit herself out of it in a way and and just subterfuge her way through this and she is not in it for the long haul she's just trying to like set herself and her girls up for a nice retirement and pay for her mother's care there's something in the beginning there's like the whole thing is is pinned to the beginning when she is translating in the courtroom and they basically marginalize her. They say something that marginalizes her and she's like internalizes that and is 
basically like, oh yeah, I'm so worthless to you? Okay, noted. And then this whole thing unfolds. So it's, the structure of it is kind of brilliant that you get that nugget in the beginning and mm. then you just sort of watch her blossom. Because here she has been doing this dirty work for whatever, $18 an hour for all of these years mm -hmm. and she can barely afford her apartment and really well done. And it's, I've said this a couple times now about the translations. It, it, it does something to me to read a different cadence. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. it's, it takes a little bit getting used to it, but I, I love that it's challenging. I'm not on autopilot with these books. Yeah. And in some ways that's what I'm looking for. And I just love that it's out of my usual track. So I really enjoyed it. If you're into crime, it's not super violent. It's not a mystery. It's a, it's a crime novel. Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit mysterious. But I think what's really great is this one character. I mean, she is had it. She's had it. Cool. Yeah. It looks like the movie is coming out March 25th in France. So that is probably why we haven't heard of it. And it is listed as a crime slash comedy. Yeah, I can. So, I can. <laughs> um, yeah, so it looks looks pretty interesting. I have to keep an eye out and for it's, that. And it's going to be called Mama Weed. I guess that is the English translation. The French is La Daronne, which... I'm not familiar with that word, so I have to... I should say that the author is Hannah-Lore Kayer. Is that how you say it? C-A-Y-R-E. I'm yeah. not sure how to pronounce it. Anyhow, good stuff. Next up for me, I start on the Australian fiction, and I have a book by Alexis Wright on my nightstand called The Swan Book, and she is an Aboriginal author, and I'm really excited... Oh, I started reading that. Oh, yeah? And it was beautiful, but difficult. And I think whatever, and I had it out from the library, and I just did not have time to appreciate it. So I sent it back. But yeah, no, that one, that will be really interesting, I think. Yeah, she has another one. The name of it is Carpent Carpenteria, I think, that won a number of prizes in Australia, and I can't get my hands on that one yet. I may have to purchase it. But I have read that heads up that her her dialect uses a lot of colloquialism. That is a little bit of a challenge for a straight English reader. Yeah. So I'm mentally prepared for that. And but I'm still totally excited about this project, and oh. I am hoping to find an audiobook. Jane Harper. Oh, the dry. The dry, or I did read the dry. Didn't is that I? her first one? I don't know. I'm no, the dry one. is the most recent. I think whatever her first one is, you could do too. The dry is a little more. No, they're all atmosphere. The dry is more. Okay. Kind of its own thing. Her first one is good. The second one not so good, but the first one you could read, and it's a mystery, so I'm sure you could do audiobook. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, then. Cool. Okay. Good day, mate. <laughs> Giveaway time. <laughs> uh, so we used a random number, number generator for our giveaway. So we had seven entries on Instagram. Well, we had to do it a little bit differently because somebody had two posts, so we had to <laughs> only count one of them. Anyway. Came up with number five, which is Telly, who's my friend, so I know where I know where to find her. 
So Telly, you have won a hoodie. Um, we'll need to talk about what size you want. And then on Ravelry in our Ravelry group, we had 13 entries. And the winner was number 11, Kelly D67 from Florida. So congratulations. And we need, if you can let us know what size you want. And you already have her address. I think I definitely have Kelly's address, but okay. I'll reach out to her about sizing. We're still trying to figure out what we're going to do with the rest of them because we do have more. And you want to do another giveaway from your... I do, but I'm still waiting to collect a few more. Okay. And maybe other people still want to submit. So if you are interested in submitting a paper or online survey for the Lemon Latitude Project, which is, again, my visual, also culinary and literal, literary project here, we want to do a giveaway from the group that submits a survey. So maybe we'll do that giveaway on March 5th. Perfect. So return your... Lemon Latitude surveys or, you know, fill out one online by March 5th and we'll do a drawing then. Sounds good. Yeah. So I think that's it for now. Enjoy your February and uh, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.